Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? May God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Probably one of the most popular sermons ever given in American history was by a man named Jonathan Edwards. He had delivered this sermon in 1741. We tend to think of times past and times past in America as perhaps a more moral or religious society, but it's not, it wasn't always that case. By 1741, so much of America was very secular, and Jonathan Edwards goes into the church in Infield, Connecticut, and delivers a sermon that has since been described as sinners in the hands of of an angry God. Um, Like many people, I'd heard about this sermon and heard about how it's all, it's it's the quintessential hellfire and brimstone sermon. And um, I'd heard so much about it, about how it was so low on grace, so low on God's love, and um, so much on God's judgment. I was really surprised when I was in high school in my American literature class reading this sermon because I had a completely different take on it. Yes, there was certainly so much. In fact, one time he compares the unbeliever to somebody who's like a spider dangling over a fire and things like that. So that's in there. But there's also in God's undeserved mercy and grace. I remember being in my high school lit class, having to choke back tears because I'm like, I deserve so much more than what John Edwards is saying. But yes, because of his mercy and grace, it doesn't happen. It's so amazing. Um, I think I have a slide up on here about sinners in the hands of an angry God. Um, if you want to go to, towards that. The impact of this sermon cannot be understated. Um, it led to the first great awakening in America, something that changed really the whole religious course of America. I got this from the Babylon Bee, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, a vacation Bible school experience. So Candy and Mel, get on that. Um, <laughs> games, prizes, and fire. I mean, I saw this, I was like, I'm kind of tempted to write a curriculum for vacation Bible schools of sinners in the hands of an angry God. There's a lot I could do with fire and crafts and things like that. So 
The impact of this sermon cannot be understated. Um, it led to the first great awakening in the United States, something that we call it an awakening because it seems like revival is too small of a term. The entire course of American history was changed at that moment. This is so encouraging for us that maybe we look at America today and we think, man, things are really going bad. You know, there's the phrase going to hell in a handbasket. I don't know why you need a handbasket, but that's the term. Um, and we think, well, is there any way out of this? Is there any way? Or is it just, is this going to happen? Well, that's what so many people thought before the first and second great awakening. God can have mercy. God, God can bring revival to this land as he did in Nineveh. And as amazing as the story of sinners in the hands of an angry God is, in which a nation repents and puts their faith in Christ, it's really nothing compared to what we read today for the first great awakening and the second great awakening. Not everybody in the United States repented and believed, but in Nineveh on that day in chapter 3, the entire city comes to faith. This sermon is the third in a series we are doing on the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is part of the minor prophets. They're called the minor prophets not because their message was unimportant, but only because of the length of, length of their books. As you saw today, we were able to do the whole chapter, have you all stand. It's only 10 verses. Real easy, real easy to get through. Jonah was a prophet, do, 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 uh, but he really never got it. Sad but true. Uh, that's from the Veggie Tales movie there. We read about Jonah actually in the book of Kings in which he gives a nice, a wheel prophecy to the king of Israel named Jeroboam II. He is talked about in the Gospels by Jesus Christ himself. Jonah the prophet who spoke, who spoke of blessing to the northern kingdom of Israel would not speak a curse to the city of Nineveh. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah in chapter 1 um, to go to Nineveh and speak against it because like Sodom before it, their sin rose up to God. Jonah decides he would rather not, so he gets on a boat so that, um, to the, what is modern-day Spain. But God will not have it, and God, not Satan or Mother Nature, sends a great wind and a storm. Jonah convinces his, sh his uh, shipmates to throw him overboard, and as far as they know, that they, they have killed him. They actually repent and turn to the Lord, his shipmates, the pagans. While Jonah is drowning nearly to the point of death, he calls out to the Lord, and the Lord hears him, and a big fish swallows him. I have to imagine life inside the fish isn't pleasant. There's no real evidence of this, but many commentators have, have theorized that perhaps Jonah was bleached white while inside the belly of the fish. Kind of an interesting idea that once he is puked up on the shores of Phoenicia, um, that's what it says, um, anyway, <laughs> puked, puked him up, um, that his uh, skin would have been bleached white. He would have had major scarring because of the stomach acid of the fish. Now, just want to say that I don't believe that because that's not what the, the text says. And the God who can keep him breathing inside of a fish for three days can also protect him from the stomach acid. Um, but life inside the fish, no matter how you look at it, is not a pleasant thing, but it is God's means of salvation. It really wouldn't have mattered anyway because, it wasn't, because his message wasn't of pageantry. As I focus on chapter 3 today, we see a small message that has an incredible impact, greater impact than even the first or second great awakening. And we are left in wonder, it's like, what could change so many people's hearts? What's this great message? You know, what changes hearts wasn't the man, 
It wasn't his oratory skill, but it was the Holy Spirit. Something we are trying to still learn today. The Ninevites and their neighbors. If you remember from my first sermon, the, the Ninevites were, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. Assyria will be the first major superpower on the face of the earth. In their time, they were the big bullies. They were, they were brutal in a brutal age. In the time of Jonah, in the time of the Ninevites, most people lived with amount of discomfort that was just expected. So to really make an impact, you had to be extremely brutal. We'll find out in Nahum that God actually prophesies against Nineveh because they were brutal beyond compare. They would dismember people alive for fun in their courts. They were not nice people. When we get to the next chapter um, next week, I'm going to talk about how we probably shouldn't be so hard on Jonah because if we understood the Ninevites, we might have the same opinion as he did. They were brutal, and that, let, that gave an unconscious um, permission to neighbors to be brutal against them. In the time of Jonah, they were, not going, they were not the Assyrian Empire, what they will be within 30 short years. They were actually in a life-and-death struggle with their neighbors to the north. They, their neighbors to the north, the tribes of Urotu um, and its associates of Mani and Madai in the north, who had been able to push their frontier to within less than 100 miles of Nineveh. At the time of Jonah's preaching to Nineveh, it is not a foregone conclusion that the Assyrian Empire will come to power. They are actually on their last leg against their neighbors, who they had been brutal to, are brutal to them in return. This gives more validity to a prophet from Israel who comes to their city telling them that in 40 days the city will be overturned they had an encampment of an enemy only about a hundred miles away who was constantly attacking them. Last week, I talked to you about the confusion um, of what ate, what ate Jonah. By the way, if I keep saying, I, this is probably one of the more fun things because everybody's really listening for when I say Noah instead of Jonah, I bet. It's like trying not to think of a pink elephant. So if I do, please forgive me. Just, just in your head, switch to Jonah. I was writing my manuscript this week and I had to go, I had to do a find and replace for Noah because I kept putting Noah instead of Jonah. So just know, I'm not talking about Noah today. I'm talking about Jonah. Um, getting slapped with fish. Um, last week I spoke about what ate Jonah. Um, was it a whale or was it a fish? And the short answer is yes. And we shouldn't look at ancient writings through our modern lenses. They didn't group things like we did. But the Hebrew word for sea creature was daga, or dog, and it, and it could be applied to both whales and big fish. And there's, there's this false god in the ancient Near East, in Nineveh specifically, in the Assyrians. Um, go to my slide with Dagon. Going to be the one... Forget what you saw before this. Anyway... Um, <laughs> The one with, okay, there is this, uh, there is this almost a supreme deity in ancient Near East mythology named Dagon. Dagon is the father of Baal. We probably all know about Baal from the different parts in the Old Testament. He is the father of Baal, and he is kind of like a mermaid. He's a fish man, because Dega is the Hebrew word, the Semitic word for fish, Dagon means fish man, and that was 
their, that was their supreme deity. Don't ask me why. The, 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 the Philistines, that was their supreme God as well. They had a statue of Dagon in one of their holy places. And when they had stolen the Ark of God, they put the Ark of God um, right beside a statue of their uh, fishman mermaid guy who's not as attractive as the little mermaid, but you can keep going on here. Um, and the statue of Dagon falls over twice, breaks its head, breaks its hands, because all idols before God are without means and without, without knowledge. Um, this, was, this was for the people of Nineveh, like getting slapped with a fish, because, because uh, um, Jonah is puked up on the shores of Phoenicia, and Phoenicia is like the center of Dagon worship as well. So people would have known the story of this fish man who came from Israel to tell a message to the people of the worshipers of the fish man. You can kind of see how God sets them up to hear the message. This isn't Jonah trying to set things up. This is God setting things up for these people to hear this message. To hear this message. Dagon was the chief de- deity of the, of the Philistines, like I said before. According to ancient mythology, Dagon was the father of Baal. He was the fish god. Um, he was also the chief deity. Uh, he was also their chief deity, the Ninevites, with the female, his female co- counterpart, Naashi. Jonah, at the end of chapter 2, has been puked up by the fish into the heart of Dagon worship. Do you imagine the word of the fish man had spread? When Jonah gets to Dagon's capital, do you think those people might be interested in what this prophet from Israel, who was swallowed by something they considered to be holy and sacred, might have to say? When Jonah arrives at their city, he makes quite a splash, pun intended. Um, He was a man who had been inside a fish for three days and directly deposited by a fish on the shores of Assyria. (coughs) The Ninevites who worshipped a fish god, were duly impressed. They gave Jonah their attention and repented of their sins. The book of Jonah has an interesting history when it comes to modern-day worship in Judaism. The most holy day in the Jewish calendar is Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, or Yom Kippur, um, is the Jewish Day of Atonement. It is on this day they confess their sins and pray for atonement from the Lord. Every year when this comes up in October, you know, of course, there, every believer should be like, I want to tell you about a God who saves. I want to tell you about the one who is the atoner. And on the, on the afternoon of, of the Day of Atonement of Yom Kippur, guess what they read? They read the prophet Jonah in its entirety. I had learned this, and I was wondering, why, why, would, they, why would they do this? Because I mean, this is the Jewish Day of Atonement, and Jews aren't repenting in the book of Jonah. It's actually pagans. It's actually a pagan nation that will destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. So I was like, why? I mean, it's like, because this isn't the Christian Day of Atonement. This is the Jewish Day of Atonement. I'm wondering why they did this. I was reading different rabbis and their, and their understanding, their defense of why do we read Yom Kippur, on, on Ram Kippur, Yom Kippur, do we read of the book of Jonah. And I thought this one uh, rabbi's take on it was just so impactful. He said that this was all about the Abrahamic covenant. That when God made a covenant with Abraham, he told him all nations will be blessed through you. And that is what we have in the book of Jonah is Israel reaching out to a pagan nation. It's what Israel should have been. It's what the church is. 
And I, I read this as like, you know, something that is us because we too had a prophet of Israel come to us in the Holy Spirit and preach to us a much greater message than Jonah to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that not only would we be saved from our sins of physical destruction, but we'd be saved from spiritual destruction. More than that, we'd be adopted into his very family. This really... Um, the third chapter of Jonah, I like to call it the good chapter. And it's the chapter I wish the book of Jonah ended with because it would really make us feel good after we read it. After you read chapter four, you don't feel as good. Next week, I'm really excited to preach that message next week. I, I'm calling it The Mirror Has Two Faces. A message, um, rarely will you see such a change and impact of, from one message. A message that in in the natural sense, doesn't make sense. That the biggest city in the world in Jonah's time would be interested, let alone the entire city turns to God, a foreign God of Yahweh, the God of all the heavens and the earth and the dry land and the seas. This really messes with so many church, church building seminars I have gone to. Because what does, but, because, um, but what Jonah does is what Christ tells us to do in the chapter, we see the same challenges for us is to be like Jonah, to one, go, two, tell, and three, watch. Starting in verses one through three, go. Jonah, it says in verse one, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. As we get into chapter three, let's compare and contrast chapter one and three. Jonah is not a poetic book, but it's set up in a sort of a poetic way in which chapter 1 and 3 are, are similar to each other, and chapter 2 and 4 are similar to each other. Chapter 2 and 4 are the prayers of Jonah. Chapter 1 and 3 is what Jonah does. Chapter 1, we start off, Jonah's given the word of the Lord to go to Nineveh, because like Sodom and Gomorrah, Nineveh's sin had come up before the Lord, and Jonah was like, how about no? And he decides what, to try to sail all the way to modern Spain. This would be like somebody when they graduate, they're like, I want to get as far as away as I can from this town. So they find the geographical furthest place you can go and then move there. That's what Jonah did. He didn't want to do that. In chapter three, though, a second time the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and he responds. You know, it's the same in both chapters. Jonah isn't, um, isn't the same, but Jonah isn't the same. Most, mostly he isn't the same. The response of Jonah is different between the two chapters. Chapter 1, he hightails it out of there. In chapter 3, he makes the journey to the city. The third thing is the follow-through. Follow through. Many people start wanting to do something great for God, but few finish. Jonah, to his credit, does everything God asks him to do. Whitney Houston, in my opinion, this is definitely my opinion, was the greatest voice of her generation. And you listen to, and I will. I mean, it's like, it gives you chills, right? By the end of her life, she had completely destroyed her voice. It was, it was a terrible thing to hear her even talk. She had started out, though, singing in churches. And if she had stuck with God, she would have not gone into all the things that would end up taking her very life. That is the, that is the lie of sin that tells us, do this and you will get fulfillment. And all it ever does is take away. You have a lot in common with Jonah. I don't mean that you are an Old Testament prophet of the nation of Israel and spent time inside of a fish, but if you are, talk to me afterwards. Um, but you both have a call. 
Our call is more than Jonah's in that we don't, we don't just have one call from God. We have many calls. Our first call is to be his son and daughter. And that's powerful. I mean, you ever think about it? It's not just salvation from sin, but we are adopted into his family. Two, to live a holy life that produces fruit in keeping with repentance. We talk about faith and works. We know that we're saved by faith and not by works. But if we have faith, it will be expressed through works, just as a tree produces fruit in keeping with its kind. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Our third call is the Great Commission, to go out into all the world and make disciples. Our fourth call is these good things that God has prepared before the foundation of the world for us to walk in, to have, to have, spiritual, to have spiritual treasure that's in heaven. Here's another way we are like Jonah. We also like to pick and choose which messages we deliver and where we go. Jonah in, Ch- in 2 Kings gives a good prophecy to his king. There is a well-known pastor who will say that his giftings are only in the positive realm of the gospel. He will, always, he will almost always exclusively talk about the love of God and almost never the holiness and judgment of God. And I understand where he's coming from because I'm like, me too. It's hard to preach about sin. I mean, I remember when we were doing the series on the seven deadly sins, that was like half a year, it felt like, constantly preaching about sin. And I, I get where he's coming from. It's hard to preach about sin, but here's the thing. It's not my message. When you come here on a Sunday morning, you open up your Bible, and I go verse by verse because it's not my message to you. It's the Lord's message, and I don't get to pick and choose. Jonah wanted to pick and choose. He just wanted to stay in Israel and preach good messages instead of going to a foreign land and preaching what maybe many would consider a negative message. In fact, it was a prophecy, a woe prophecy, a a negative prophecy. Many of us, if God called us to a dangerous area, we'd be booking our our flight over to Bermuda or to Aruba. For many of us, we would rather, um, if God called us to go next door, we would get a flight to Afghanistan before we want to do that. There's enough room in the fish for all of us. In verse, uh, in verse 1, it says that the, um, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Chapter 3 opens up with a second chance for the prophet. This might be shocking, but not everybody in the Bible gets a second chance. In 1 Kings chapter 3, there's an unnamed prophet who is during the reign of, Jer- who is during the reign of Jeroboam the first. And God tells him to go to the king and tell the king off. And then go straight home. Do not, collect, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go straight home. And he allows himself to be deceived by another prophet who was lying to him. And after that prophet was done lying to him and he was on his way home, not a fish but a lion devours him. And he does not get out of the stomach of that lion. Or he might look at Esau. The New Testament said Esau was godless, and for us not to be godless. That though he sought the promise with tears, he did not receive it. Or Judas. All this to say is not that God is not a God of second chances, but today if you hear his voice, respond. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that God is asking something of you, respond, because not everything you'll get the second chance to do. Jonah This is actually something that does not happen for everybody. But we do have to notice that all of us here, we probably did not respond the first time we heard the gospel. It took many, many, many 
I mean, I think about my own testimony. I heard the gospel week in, week out until God had to, had to give me a Damascus-like experience um, in my own, in, at my own, uh, in my own uh, house, in my own room. Not to say that God is not a God of second chances. Not everybody, though, gets a second chance. So today, if you hear his voice, do not turn away. Respond. There are other things that God does not give us a second chance for, like those good works that God has prepared before the foundation of the world. Sometimes, like Jonah, we do. It comes back up. And sometimes that was our opportunity. It's not that we'll go to hell if we don't take advantage of it, but we also miss out on the blessing. In verse 3, God calls Nineveh a great city. He's making a dual statement here. One is that the city is very large. It takes three days to walk around it. Second is that it is a great city to God. Not because it is filled with great people, it's not. But it is a city, as God will describe it, where the people don't know their right hand from their left. With Jonah, we see the reverse of Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. I was talking to my wife about this because I think this is just so, it's so impactful. When it came to the patriarch Abraham, he was told Sodom and Gomorrah that God would judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And he, he pleads with God. He makes a deal with God. If there's 50 righteous people, will you destroy a city on the account of 50 righteous people? And the Lord responds to him, no, not on the account of 50 righteous people would I destroy the city. This is something we tend to think of Old Testament God as a God of wrath and the New Testament God as a God of love. You know what that reveals to us in the, in the story of Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah is that God's not looking for an opportunity to destroy. He's looking for an opportunity to show mercy. And there's certain ways we read this. You know, Abraham, he's afraid he was going to offend the Lord. So he says, be not, be not angry with me, Lord, but on the account of 10 righteous people would you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord told him, on the count of 10, I would not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham had God's hearts, but he didn't have God's vision because he did not know the hearts of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Jonah, on the other hand, he has the opposite problem. He, he has the vision of God he understands that these people are not too far, that there, there could be a time of repentance. In fact, he expects it. He expects it, and that's why he doesn't want to go. But he doesn't have the heart of God. In fact, you'd almost see in this next prayer, in this next chapter, that he would ask God, hey, for 10 unrighteous people, would you not destroy this city? We are called to go Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is our word from God and our call. Go. But I don't feel led to go. That's what many people will say. I'm just waiting to hear from God, and I'm just staying here. But I have good news. If you're waiting to hear from God, I, he's already told us, go. Sometimes we have lead poisoning. We're like, well, I don't feel led to do this. You don't need to feel led to do something God already has told you to do. Maybe he's calling us to go across the world. Maybe he's just calling us to go next door. There's some debate over how to properly translate and understand the uh, verse I just read to you um, from, the, uh, from the original Greek into English. In particular, the word go. Go is a participle of make. That, that has led many to read it as going. But in the Koine Greek, a participle does not become a gerund, but remains an active verb. This is actually all for the benefit, I think, of Niall, who had to do gerunds the other week. Um, but, what does the, but what does that matter? 
because we have we may have passive commands to go we may have active commands to go but we all know that we have a command to go ukraine or next door timbuktu or to that guy in 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 the next cubicle or into on the next desk we all understand that like jonah we all have a passive and active commands to go in the army you have standing orders and you have active orders a standing order is what you're supposed to be doing at any point in time. You can't tell your commanding officer, no, I didn't know I was supposed to be, you know, standing at attention or, you know, digging whatever. If you've already been commanded, I'm just waiting for somebody to tell me what to do. Until then, I'm just going to, you know, sit in my uh, civilian clothes and play video games. That, that's not going to fly. You have standing orders. And we also have orders that are given to us. Our order is to go. Our, our order is also to tell Verses 4 and 5, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Matthew twelve forty one speaks of the men of Nineveh. The men of Nineveh will stand at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. I began this message talking about what an... What kind of message would lead 120,000 raging pagans, brutal people, to repent? And what is it? What is the incredible, persuasive, um, persuasive sermon he has? In 40 days, this place is going down. Bit of a surprise. And we have a better message than Jonah. We have a better message than Jonah. Because one who has preached before us, one who came before us, who lives, who is at the right hand of the Father, has come, and he is greater than Noah. He's greater than Jonah. He's greater than Noah, too. Um, there are so many books about how to grow a church. There are so many books, there are so many seminars, there are so many guru, gurus who will tell you to do these things, and people will accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So who is responsible for the growth of the church? Who is responsible for salvation? Is it me because I'm the pastor? Maybe it's your board. Are you responsible as members and attendees? What about your unsaved loved one, loved ones? Is it because you haven't found the right sequence of words to tell them? Or maybe you haven't adequately argued against their objections to the Gospels? But here's the thing. You are not responsible for saving anyone. Can I say that again? You are not responsible for saving anyone. I didn't even put this in my notes, but it's something I remembered. I was in high school, and I remember just kind of working myself to death when it came to our student ministries. We actually had awesome, you know, to the glory of God, and not because of me, in the spite of me. God did amazing things through our student ministry um, and when I was in high school. But I remember it was, it was like more than a full-time job, and you're in high school at the time. And I'm doing all these things because that's just kind of my personality, having these outrageous migraines. I remember going to youth group, and one of the youth uh, helpers, adult youth helpers, was giving this uh, giving this sermon about how about evangelism and he says don't you care about your friends and i snapped at him and i'm like what do you think i do all day <laughs> you know why i snapped at him because i was putting the pressure of saving my school onto my shoulders i was putting the pressure of saving my family on my shoulders and it was prideful nonsense because i couldn't save anyone all i can do all i'm asked to do is tell the message 
tell the message. You know what happens, though, when we put ourselves in the wrong order? We start getting this fear of rejection. And we tell ourselves, we tell ourselves, well, if they reject, if they reject the Lord, they're rejecting me. And then there's a bit of pride in there because we think if they accept the Lord, then they're accepting me. No on both counts. Amen. I appreciate when people, when people say, great sermon, Pastor Jason, but I don't let that into my heart because I put it back to the Lord as glory to the Lord. And I take that and, and I know that that's what you're saying as well. Glory to God, because God has done something through my message, um, his message that he's given me for you. When it comes to the responsibility of building the church, Christ said, I will build my church. Yet there are so many people who want to sell, you know, $500 programs on how to build your church. I don't want to build my church. I want to stand by and watch Christ build his church. Loving versus unloving. We look at, uh, if we look at Jonah's um, message here, many people would call it unloving. In fact, he doesn't give them any hope. He just says in 40 days, this city will be overturned. And many would say, well, that's, that's just really unloving. But you know why Jonah didn't want to preach that message? Because he didn't love them. That's why he wanted to flee to Tarsus because he didn't love them. So he didn't want to preach to them that message because he knew if they knew about their sin, they might repent. So what's so crazy is that people today will hate people who preach against sin and think because it's unloving is what they will say. I was watching this video. I like to watch videos every now and again of people witnessing in the most, you know, hard to reach areas. And this one man, um, this one man, he was preaching at a pride parade over in Canada. And man, I, can't, I couldn't believe the way people treated him. He was a black man, and this white person spit in his face. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to... There was such an undertone. It's like, okay, so the moment you're told you can hate somebody of a different race, you can call them all kinds of horrible things, apparently. And you, just got, you saw the, the hatred for the gospel. Now, this man was not doing it out of, a, out of a spirit of anger. I mean, I could absolutely tell that. He had a sign that said, pride goes before the fall. And he was preaching the full gospel, not just of sexual sin, but of all of sin. And all these people, I remember this one Christian lady, she's confronted me. She's like, you're turning more people away from God. Why don't you just tell them that Jesus loves them? I was like, and I was thinking, I was like, you know something, what you're doing right now, lady, is so hateful. Because every person you're telling that to, they're like, yeah, God loves me. I love me too. I'm good. Are going to go to hell. You didn't say a word. Yet this man was willing to get spit on, get called all kinds of things that I'm not even going to repeat because he loved these people enough to endure that, that they might have a chance at salvation. Um, let me go on here. <laughs> it wasn't really actually in my notes there. Jesus, um, when it comes to evangelism, we see in Jonah that the message is what's important and not even the messenger. For your sake, though, you should love the people you speak to. For your sake, because of the sake of Christ, who forgave you, who took off your shackles, you should love those around you. The atheist and illusionist Penn Jillette had a, had a, had a performance. And after this performance, a man came up to him, told him, really enjoyed the magic show. And he just told him, you know, I just want you to you know that Jesus loves you and he'll forgive you of your sins. And he gave him a Bible. And Penn Jillette on his podcast, he was, he, was, he, was really, he was really impacted by this. And he said, and this is what he said. Before I get into this, I just want to mention proselytize means to share your faith. 
I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and people could go, um, people uh, could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's really not worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward. He says, an atheist who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that there's everlasting life is possible and not to tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Here's the thing. The full gospel doesn't only include Jesus loves you like you're auditioning for a part and touched by an angel. It also includes talking about sin. And not in a judgmental way, like I'm above sin, but we are all sinners before God. We've sinned constantly in thought, word, and deed, and not as mistakes, not as things that we correct later, but it is heinous before God and we deserve punishment. But God, who is gracious and loving, sent his son to die in our place. Jonah's message, we will find out in the next chapter why Jonah actually doesn't want to go and tell them that their city is going to be destroyed. But now that God has brought him here, he does, and it's amazing. The people repent. What, what's this life-changing message that Jonah didn't have, the, didn't have in his heart to say before? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Some read this and say there must be more to that message, and they will embellish that message. Talk about him talking about being inside the fish, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. It tells us what his message is, and it's what God told him to tell, tell them. Forty days, and, the, and this city will be overthrown. But it doesn't, but it doesn't matter. What I, think that was, what, I, what I think Jonah's message was, it doesn't matter. Today, he would have failed preaching 101 in any of our universities because it's not persuasive. In fact, he's not giving them an option. He's not saying repent. It's not loving as we would describe loving. It's not relevant. He doesn't have a laser light show. He doesn't have a DJ following him around. You know, I joke, but there was actually ways orators would make a message appealing to the message, and he doesn't do that at all. He gives a simple message. And here's the thing. What he's expecting is what we need to start expecting is that the Holy Spirit is working behind the scenes in ways that we could never imagine or hope for. Because there's an unexplained reaction. Their, reac their reaction is over and above what you would expect. It's even comical. They put, they put sackcloth on their animals and make them fast too. Um, animals don't like wearing clothes in fact, you can ask, if you want to go to that one slide now, you can ask my cat Bear how much he likes clothes. Um, animals do not like wearing clothes. And sackcloth, it was an itchy fabric. It was made out of goat's hair. And I imagine, I, I think it's funny that they put it on the animals. Did they put them on the goats? Because what's that like for the goats? You know, they're like, uh, thank you for getting it back. Um, Animals don't like, but they're like, they're so passionate about repenting that they do even that. The reaction is incredible. My, uh, they even have their animals fast. My sister-in-law, Amy, her, when she was a kid, her, her hamster bit her, so she stopped feeding it, and she said that it was going on a fast. 
Israel, God's people had prophets who had told them similar messages, and their response was so much different than Nineveh's. They killed the prophets for their testimony. They sawed Isaiah in two. This is this is the say this is uh this saying is attributed to Henry the Second. Excuse me. In history, we see people do not react this way to this message. Henry the Second. This uh, quote is attributed to him when this priest was preaching against him. Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? The priest was then assassinated. This is the sly way that King Henry had that priest killed. Martin Luther said this, Always preach in such a way that if the people listening do not come to hate their sin, they will instead hate you. This is something that I pray every time I come up to be faithful, that the working of God would be seen, whether to great revival or great rejection. Because it's not about give, delivering you a message that you like and are like, mm, that's good, but a message that will be life-changing according to the Holy Spirit's power. Third thing, wait. Jonah goes into the city, he delivers the message, and then he waits. He doesn't try, he doesn't try any kind of strategy, he just waits to see what God is going to do. And in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 28, this is Jesus' evangelism strategy. He says, and, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how the earth produces by itself the fir- first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the, in the ear. Jesus' evangelism strategy is simple. Plant the seed and go take a nap, which is something I'm going to do today. I like it in the amen after that, right? Sunday, Sunday afternoon naps are the best. Um, but it's, it, you know, it obviously goes deeper than that, that we rest that the Holy Spirit is working. We plant the seed and we trust that God's word does not return void. We then don't put the responsibility on ourselves to save anyone because we can't. But we trust that the Holy Spirit is going to work. Because here's the thing, it's not about you. Do you know what the most insignificant part of Jonah's call was Jonah. You know what the most insignificant part of your call in the Great Commission is? You, because it's not about you. It's chiefly about God and his glory. Secondarily, it's about the people who need to hear the word of God that you are hoarding. Last, it's about, last though, it is about how you, it is about how you feel. We'll see in Jonah, it did not make him feel very good, but it's not about how it makes us feel. It's about being obedient to the calling of God. It doesn't always make us feel good, especially when the person rejects the gospel. If for nothing else than just the sympathy that that person may die and go to hell. In fact, I remember Ray Comfort going to a conference of Way of the Master. Ray Comfort is uh, the guy who does Way of the Master. Um, he does stuff with Kirk Cameron. You may have seen that. So I went to this, and, and uh, Ray Comfort was preaching, and he was saying a lot of people say Christians should be happy all the time. He's like, he's like not at all, because it's like, you are, it's like the Titanic has gone down, and you're, you're on one of the boats, and you are seeing all the people who are struggling, you're trying to get to everybody, but you can't get to everybody. And there are people who are drowning, who are dying. You have joy. You have joy that's unspeakable and full of glory, but you're not always happy about it. It doesn't matter how we feel about it. It's about the mission that God has put 
in, in our laps to go and to preach. And then we wait to see what the Holy Spirit will do to what is fertile ground and what is infertile ground. In verse 6, we see a king's repentance in the reach of the message. The reach of the message is massive. We are not led to believe that Jonah was strategic at all. He was probably wandering through the streets shouting his message. God, however, was strategic by having this fish man speak to a people who worshipped a fish man. The king himself hears and is cut cut to his very heart. He himself takes off his kingly robes, has his nobles do the same, and they put on sackcloth that covered just enough for modesty and sat in the dust. They take their, resp- their repentance seriously in 7 and 8. This reaction seems overboard. Jonah um, does not say repent or else the city will be overthrown in 40 days. He just says the city will be overthrown in 40 days. But the king has a proclamation published that not that, that the people nor the animals would eat or drink anything. In verse 8, he even goes further, has man and beast covered in sackcloth. Once again, animals do not like to be covered in sackcloth. They, um, but look at the rest of it. Let everyone turn, a, turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This isn't some religious right. He, expect his, he expects his people to turn away from the things they once loved and to love the things they once hated. That's our message, right? We're telling people, turn away from the sin you once loved. You know, we sometimes make a small matter of it, but every person who comes to Christ, it's like taking your child up to the mountain like Abraham was told to take his son to the mountain and to put it to death. That there are certain things in our life, the way we even identify ourselves as part of our sin, that when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we said, take it. I don't need it anymore. My identity is now in Christ. The king, the people, that is what they are experiencing here. They are hating the sin they once loved and are clinging to the righteousness they once ignored to love the God of all, the, of all creation. He expects people to give up the things that they once paid for, they once invested in. There's no explanation for this earthly. There's no earthly explanation for this. It is only the working of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 9 is probably one of the most understated verses in this entire book. In verse 9, who knows? Can you imagine, like, nuclear bombs about to fall on the United States, and we're like, let's repent, because who knows? Who knows? God might take pity. But when you are desperate enough, even a desperate hope is a fulfilling hope. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? It's so much like the book of Esther. When Mordecai tells Esther, do not think you among all, amongst all the Jews will escape, but you and your father's house will perish and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And who knows that you've come to royal position for such a time as this. Get into a spot of who knows. Should I tell this person, will they believe the gospel? Who knows? But I'm going to step out in faith because I am trusting, I'm prevailing upon the mercies of God. Did you know that Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord, plans, for, um, plans not for evil, um, but for good, to give you a hope and a purpose. 
Hopefully I quoted that one right. I didn't have it written down. Um, that one is not specifically for you. It's not. It's not for Americans. It's for the nation of Israel. How about Second Chronicles 7.14? If my people who are called by my name will pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land was not a promise God spoke to America. And in the context, in, in the context, it's not about us. And many people, when you post these things, many people will kind of smugly, and I, I was one of these people, who will say, oh, you're taking that out of context. It doesn't apply. You're, you're wrong. I was wrong when I said that doesn't apply. Because it does. Because it's more than just about God's covenant. It's about the heart of our Father. That if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, you know what Nineveh's promise was? Destruction. But who knows? When God hasn't given me even a word about somebody's salvation, I still pray, I still preach to them, because who knows? I remember when I was a youth pastor praying for our teenagers, as I pray for you, and I pray for those that are in the congregation or in that youth group who didn't know God, and I would pray who knows kinds of prayers. And I would say, God, I prevail upon your mercies. For I know your plans for them are not for evil, but they're for good. You are not looking for an opportunity to destroy, but a, an opportunity to restore. An opportunity to save. If God's plans for this wicked city was not to harm them, but to give them a hope and a future that when they prayed and they sought his face, he heard from heaven and he healed their very hearts. Not that God owes us, but I believe these are things we pray over ourselves and over America because the mercies of God are new every day and they are universal. In verse 10, we have something interesting here. Verse 10, when God saw what they had did, not their fasting, not the not the you know, sackcloth and all these things, but really the state of their hearts, they're repenting away from their evil ways, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he would do to them, and he did not do it. In the KJV, in the King James Version, it says that God repented. And this has really caused some confusion for a lot of people. You know, does God do something wrong and he has to correct it? That's not what that word means at all. But it means there's different meanings to it. One of those meanings is to have sorrow. So when in Genesis 6, 6, when God looked at the hearts of mankind and they were continually evil, it says he repented. And what it means is that he was incredibly sad because of what they had chosen to make themselves into. This meaning of the word, though, is to have compassion for. God sees God sees. 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. And he sees them repenting, and it's, it moves the heart of God. We have our own Ninevites, maybe. I hope we don't, but we kind of do. Maybe it's the other political aisle. Maybe it's the Russians. Maybe it's Chi the Ch uh, people in China or the Chinese government or whatever. But God sees people, and he's looking for the opportunity for salvation. And shouldn't that be our hearts? 
to get the heart of God like Abraham did, but then to have the vision of Jonah that God is so big, he can bring restoration to America, to Canada, to Mexico, all around the world. God does not repent for he does nothing wrong, but he does feel compassion for those and he does not drive out a contrite heart. Does this make Jonah a false prophet? No, because the city was overthrown. It was turned upside down. Not with death and destruction from an outside nation or calamity, but spiritually, the old Ninevites were dead and there is now a new Ninevites. From the king to the smallest child, who should know right from who should know right from wrong they have turned to the god of abraham isaac and jacob we'll say that god is immutable and that is true god does not change he is not changing by relenting it is the ninevites who have changed so why does god change his mind here he doesn't he does not change his mind about sin and repentance it's the people who have changed for salvation is truly of the Lord. The end of Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, he says salvation is of the Lord. This is the power of the word of God. It changes hearts and it breathes life. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know how amazing salvation is? What an incredible miracle it is? Paul's saying it's just like when God spoke the universe into motion. When you see somebody coming to faith, and you know, a lot of people will say, man, if you could raise the dead, that's a miracle. Now that's really a miracle. Woo, man, if you could raise somebody back to life, man, people would really respond. No, 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 they wouldn't. First of all, Jesus actually said, um, in this parable of the rich man Lazarus, that if they do not believe the law and the prophets, even a dead person preaching to them, they won't believe. And two, it's, not, it's by far not even the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle is when, a, like me and you, when we are sinners and we came before the throne of grace, the old us died away and something new was born. Something new was regenerated from the ashes. That is the miracle and salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah is right in chapter 2. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But as we'll read in chapter 4, he likes that to be applied to him a lot more than he likes it applied to others. Worship team, would you come up at this time? So as I end this message here, I want to remind you, you have a calling. So go. Go into all the world and go next door. Go to your schools. Go to your workplaces. Go get coffee. Go wherever God leads and tell. Tell his story. Tell your story. That's a part of his story. You have a greater message than Jonah. Rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and not on your own. Wait. Do not be anxious. It's hard not to be anxious, especially when it's a loved one who's living in rebellion. I get that. I think for some of you who have maybe an unsaved child, I can't imagine that. But trust this, God cares more about that person than you do. God weeps over that person more than you will ever weep over them. God has moved to compassion over that person more than you ever will be. So we can rest in that. Share your story 
with at least one person this week where you, who you have. And I said that the first week, I'm saying it this week as well. That's your homework for this week. Share the message. Go and share and wait this week. Would you please stand with us as we sing our final song? This is our opportunity to respond to the message, to be better than Jonah, to be as faithful as Jonah, to go, to tell, and to wait. And we need to ask ourselves, who is God calling us to go to in our life? Chances are, if you have somebody in your workplace or school that you really can't stand, that's probably the person God wants you to go to. It's an amazing thing. I remember in high school, I had, a, I had a big issue with this guy. I remember God telling me, pray for him. Oh, this was also in several stages in my life. And it's crazy. I couldn't, I couldn't be even angry with this person anymore because I loved them so much. And it wasn't me trying to drum that up, but it was the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. It was the fruit of the spirit of love, of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Who is somebody in your life that you can go to, tell, and to watch and pray that the Holy Spirit works on? Worship team, would you please lead us?